0: I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. My daughter and I are here for a special announcement, which is that Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books was just nominated for a Webby Award in the Arts and Culture category for podcasts. So please, please vote by April 18th so that I can win the People's Choice component of this award. And now my daughter has a little something to say. Hi. I love my mom so much, and she's been working really hard for this podcast to be on Instagram. (laughs) And I also want you to know that I love her, so please, please, please vote for Zibby Owens, right? This is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, and I love my mom so much. Please vote for Zibby Owens Webby Awards. The website is vote.webbyawards.com. Today's episode has been sponsored by Serial Box. Serial Box delivers addictive book content in short listen or read installments designed to fit into today's fast-paced mobile lifestyle. Switch between listening and reading with a single click, picking up right where you left off. Learn more at SerialBox.com. S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. Today, I'm interviewing Jennifer Robeson, who is the best-selling author of five novels set during and after the two world wars, including Somewhere in France and Goodnight from London. Her fifth novel, The Gown, a novel at the Royal Wedding, came out December 31st, 2018. A graduate of King's University College at Western University, Jennifer got her doctorate in British Economic and Social History from St. Anthony's College at the University of Oxford. A former editor, she currently lives in Toronto, Canada with her husband and children. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm thrilled to be interviewing you today. Hi, Sibby. <laughs> so, Jennifer, could you please tell listeners what The Gown is about?
1: So, The Gown is about what happened to the people of Britain, generally speaking, after the end of, of the war, the Second World War. Where I started, I, I was really interested in finding out what happened the day after the E-Day, uh, and because my previous book, Goodnight for London, ends on VE Day, and I wanted to know when everyone woke up the next morning uh, with a terrible hangover, of course, and, and and uh, you know, had, had the mess to clean up uh, of, you know, if, just think of what a mess Trafalgar Square was the next day, and and kind of the, the dust cleared and people were able to think of what lay ahead. What were they imagining? And I, I think they were probably imagining that life would get better, that the bombs wouldn't be falling on that soldiers you know, they wouldn't be learning of of their loved ones in service being killed or or wounded. And that indeed stopped. But in every other respect, life continued on as it had done during the war. And in many respects, actually, it got worse in terms of the daily hardships, the rationing, the shortages, the queuing up for things, the lack of housing. Everything was very, very difficult. And so I wanted to write a book about that period. But I also knew that would be a pretty grim book to read, 400 pages of misery and and woe. (laughs) And so I was looking for a counterpoint, and the counterpoint I found was in this great glittering event towards the end of 1947 when Princess Elizabeth, the heir to the throne, married this Very, very dashing and handsome young naval officer who was a distant cousin of hers, Philip Mountbatten. And 72 years later, they're still married. Uh, And I wanted to set the book in the world of the royal wedding, but not from the point of view of the Queen herself, or, uh, or as she was then, the Princess, but from the people, the point of view of the people who are behind the scenes cuz you know i think we all love stories that are set behind the scenes or you know the the upstairs downstairs aspect to there's the the people in the aristocracy or in royal families but but who are the people that we never see who who the servants who take care of them the people whose work makes their lives unfold as if they're on oiled casters really and so i wanted to look at who the people were behind the scenes of the royal wedding and of course The one aspect of royal weddings that I think we all, then and now, get really obsessed over is the gown that the bride wears. And I knew that it had been designed by Norman Hartnell, but I didn't know anything about the women who actually made it. And when I started looking, that's when I discovered there was this whole kind of hidden anonymous world of the seamstresses and embroiderers that their stories had never been told. And that's where I knew I found my book. So my book is about two women who are fictitious in that You know, I I didn't want to appropriate the stories of of real women who'd worked at Hartnell. And besides, when I make people up, I can do anything I want to them. (laughs) I have Anne Hughes, who's a young British woman from a working class background, who was apprenticed at age 14 to Norman Hartnell's embroidery studio, and who more than, you know, almost 15 years later, is still working for Norman Hartnell and has risen to become one of the most senior embroiderers in the atelier. And she becomes friends with a a young expatriate French woman, Miriam Dassin, who has escaped the Holocaust. Uh, We know this very early on. And who's trying to make her way in post-war Britain. She has come to Britain because she no longer feels safe in France. Her entire family was murdered at, at Auschwitz. And she's trying to make a new start. And Anne, in her own way, is also struggling because her entire family has been lost to her. Her parents died before the war. Her brother was killed in the Blitz and she really has no one left. And so they strike up a friendship. They end up living together, sharing a very modest little council house in Essex and traveling into London every day. And they are given the task of embroidering the princess's wedding gown. And it's as their stories unfold, uh we see the construction of the gown, but also the development of their relationship and how work on the gown affects their lives in a really profound way. And it really changes the course of their lives. And then uh, the scenes in 1947 are, are woven through with scenes from more or less the present day, from 2016, when a young woman called Heather McKenzie, who's Canadian, I finally put a Canadian in <laughs> And Heather has been – her grandmother has passed away, her, and her grandmother she was very, very close with, and but didn't really know a lot about in the way that – and I even think with my own grandparents, how much do I actually know of their lives before – you know i was alive and was aware of them as people and it's really a mystery and i think that's true of our parents as well often and and so heather knows very little about her grandmother and is very surprised when she's left a box of these exquisite embroideries of beautiful flowers that are embroidered with pearls and little what looks like little diamond chips and she's a journalist so she starts investigating and she realizes that These flowers are identical to the ones that decorate uh, the Queen's wedding gown. And so her interest is piqued and that sends her to London in a search for answers about not only the embroideries, but her grandmother. And so with that, I don't want to give too much away, but that's the kind of the, uh, broadly speaking, the introduction, I guess I can give to the book. And and what it is, is my way of, of taking, you know, I, I consider myself a failed academic in that I trained to become a university professor, but never taught. And so, but I still have this lurking desire to to tell people about the social history, the material history that interests me. And so I sneak it into my books and then uh, put a nice candy coating of, you know, royal wedding on top uh, to make the, the social history a little more
0: palatable, I suppose. I am not sure I can allow you to call yourself a failure in any context. So you're you're gonna have to retract that part of what you just said, but <laughs> I did a speaking engagement
1: the other week and and one of the other people speaking there is an amazing historian called Cecil Foster and he said I should really think of myself as a liberated academic in that <laughs> I get to do all the fun stuff and I still get to talk to people. I wouldn't say I have students as such, but but I feel I get to do a little bit of teaching. But I have none of the committee work. I, I don't have the. There's a pressure to publish, but but it's a good kind of pressure. I don't have to worry about losing tenure if I don't get a book out on time. So all of these things, you know, my life has turned up from where I'm standing as perfectly as it could have done. So I have no regret.
0: I also think you are a history teacher. I mean, I learned a lot. I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know that much about what it was like in London after the war. And I didn't even know about the rations, And I feel like I actually read quite a bit about World War II, but not about the aftermath. So I learned a lot. I feel like by writing these books, you're absolutely teaching. I don't know what you're talking about.
1: (laughs) Well, and you know what? It's something, I mean, I knew about it because that was my doctoral thesis was focused on the history of the period. But I think it's pretty typical that most people, including very well-educated people, haven't learned a lot about post-war history because it, on the surface, it doesn't seem very interesting. And if you contrast it with with what was happening in the United States at the same time, where life was very quickly becoming quite good, in a generally speaking, for the majority of people. In Britain and in continental Europe and anywhere that had been ravaged directly by the war, it was a long, long time before people were able to get off their knees and to stand tall again and really resume their lives. And we tend to gloss over this period in popular history. You know, there are not a lot of movies that focus on this period, not a ton of books, really. It's as if, and I'm guilty of that with my previous book, I ended on B.E. Day. And I didn't answer the question of what happened to my characters when they had to look around and ask, what has this war done to our world? And it had left the world in a shambles. And not just materially speaking, but in the lives, the emotional lives of the people who had survived. The trauma was profound. And no one lived through that war without bearing the scars the invisible scars of it for the rest of their lives. And that was something that I also wanted to talk about was what was it like to survive and to then have to pick up the pieces and get on with your life. And and the answer is that it was a very bittersweet time for many, many people, because even as their lives began slowly to improve, there's the memory of all that was lost and the people that they loved and who were killed, who suffered. And that's something that haunts my characters. And so I wouldn't say The Gown is a sad book, far from it, but I certainly encourage people to think about the cost of war and what it does to people and how it lingers long after you know the, the celebrations for victory are
0: over. So your love of history, is it the stories or is it the... Like, Because you're obviously a great storyteller, so I'm just wondering, have you always been interested in writing? Have you always been interested in history, or is it just the combination of where great stories come from?
1: That's a good question. I mean, I for the longest time, I never considered writing fiction. I always assumed I would write nonfiction. I worked as an editor for many years, helping other people with their writing. And it was really only once I was at home with my little ones, and when I say little ones, it was a newborn baby and a two-year-old. And I was casting about for something to do that that I, I would find more intellectually stimulating, I guess, than watching Teletubbies and <laughs> and, and, and you know uh, going on on long walks to try and get my children who refused to nap to settle down for a few hours. But I'd always, always, and I think this grew, this came from growing up in a house where my father was a history professor and my mother who was actually a lawyer and later a judge, was also a history buff. And it was something that was very present. We talked about things like this at the dinner table, and not in a precious way. My dad is one of these great anecdote tellers. And so not just anecdotes about his own life, but he can take historical events and describe in a way is he would bring them to life in the way that the great tellers of narrative history do. And so... I think the germ of the idea of writing fiction as a means of telling stories about our past was born when I was a, a child and and probably really more when I was a teenager. And then, you know, I had years of university and years of of making my way in the working world, and and that kind of got buried. It was only when I was at home with these little ones and and feeling really, I hate to say it, I love being a mom, I still do, but it was boring at times, let's face it. There are long stretches of time with little ones that can be quite boring. And that's when I started feeling what the great writer Anne Lamott has talked about is the tug on the sleeve of your heart. And it was just this little tug, uh, this little voice almost saying, I have an idea. I feel like I have an idea and I want to write about it. And the idea was to tell the story of one woman's experience of the First World War. But from her point of view, not the point of view of a man, so many, and this is 10 years ago, so many of the books that I'd read about the First World War were uniquely from the male point of view. And they were interesting in some of the books that I cherished. They were really great monumental works of fiction, like, you know, the, the Regeneration Trilogy by Pat Barker. But I wanted to know what it was like to be a woman at that time. And the only way I was going to get an answer was to do the research and to tell the story myself. And so that's where my first book came from. And it took me, it was a long time before I could get it published. But once it was published, and to my absolute astonishment did well, that gave rise to the next book and the next book. And I keep finding these stories that come to me quite often out of the blue. They always begin more or less with the question, what if?
0: Mm-hmm. What if
1: this happened? What if a certain person, you know, found themselves in a certain situation, what would happen? And so, you know, with my previous book, A Night from London, I just was really interested in, in the idea of what if a young woman were a journalist and she found herself caught up in the great story of the Second World War, and if she found herself living in London during the Blitz, what would that story look like? And with this book, with the gown, it's the question of what would it look like if I told the story of of the people, the anonymous, voiceless, to some degree faceless people who have been largely forgotten by history? What if I told the story of the women who, who made this very iconic gown? And in so doing, honoured the work that they had done. Because it wasn't mechanical, repetitive, mindless work, this embroidery. It is artistic work of the highest order. And I really do consider the people who do such work to be artists. And I don't think they're very rarely are they accepted as such. But they're not, you know, they're not doing, and certainly the case is true with with the women in Hartnell's uh, workrooms, this wasn't a case of them being given templates or blueprints effectively that told them exactly where to put every stitch. They were given sketches and it was their job to interpret those sketches and, and to, to bring the embroidery to, you know, Mr. Hartnell's ideas to life. And they did so in a way that required them to have artistic sensibilities and, you know, I, f- I feel they should have been honoured at the time. They should have been recognised. And they weren't for a number of reasons that involve not only just issues about kind of class divisions, uh, but also this notion that there's difference between an artist and an artisan. And I think a lot of people who study material history are interested in it, realise that that's a, if there's a line between them, it's a very, very fine and porous line. And And it's just it's an interesting back way into considering issues of of misogyny, of you know the emotional toll, as I was saying before, of a long running conflict. and the really the lack of of any chance at that time for for a person to to talk through. You know, today, well, you know, I certainly would think nothing if, if I went through a traumatic experience of, of going to a professional and undergoing some form of therapy to, to help me with my experiences. But but very, very few people had access to that kind of help then. And and to, to go through the rest of your life with, with these kind of burdens upon you is something I don't know if, if those of us who are alive today are uh, full enough for the burdens carried by our parents and grandparents and great grandparents. So all of these are these are ideas that are all swirling around in my head whenever I'm I'm writing these books and and the reason that my books to this date have all been set in the first and second world wars is because everything is heightened. My wonderful editor at at HarperCollins Tessa Woodward one of her questions she always asks me is what are the stakes? What's at stake? Because if nothing's at stake then there's nothing to care about if you're a reader mm-hmm. and if if everything is at stake if a person's future and happiness and survival is is at stake then then it gives us something to root for and in periods of war of course everything is at stake and so that's where i find these stories but they're typically not stories about grand people or well-known people. They're about ordinary people, the way I'm an ordinary person. And I think most of us are really, when it comes down to it.
0: I feel like I need to haul up the place where I got my wedding gown and now like go try to find the people who made it. <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's the thing. And I,
1: I remember I first had this kind of thought when I was watching, you know, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge get married in 2011. And I got up at the crack of dawn and I had all my girlfriends over and we were wearing our fascinators and uh, drinking, you know, champagne at four in the morning. And I'd baked scones and uh, we were having strawberries and cream. And it was just a delightful experience. I, I treasure that little tea party I had that morning. And I still remember when we saw Kate's gown and I was blown away. And I still am. I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful, not just a gown, but a, a statement, a, a really a historic treasure as it will be in the future. I remember thinking and they said it was Sarah Burton for Alexander McQueen who designed it. And then I kept waiting to find out, well, who were the women who worked on it, who, who made it. And we never really learned uh, the the embroidery on the gown there's there's a, a quite a lot of embroidery on it, but because it's tone on tone, it's not as noticeable as the embroidery on on the queen's wedding dress. It was done by the women at the Royal School of Needlework. I know that, but Beyond that, we don't know their names or faces or experiences. I think largely for reasons of of privacy and um, the, the kind of the gutter press in Britain would would love nothing more than to get people's names so they can, you know, steal their cell phone <laughs> numbers and, and all of that. And, you know, in, in The Gown, there's one of the characters says, who's a journalist, says, I'm not interested in details of the royal waistline. But there are a lot of people today who are, unfortunately, and I think that's why we don't hear the stories of these people, because it's out of an abundance of caution to protect their private lives. But that doesn't mean I'm not curious. Right, <laughs> you know, I'm totally. I'm so curious.
0: And so when you have all these ideas floating around and you decide, okay, I'm going to make a whole book about this, what do you do next? Do you make an outline or do you develop the characters or like, what's your process like and how long does it take for you to write these books? Oh, so typically the first, once I've had the
1: idea fall out of the sky and I often, I've described it as an anvil, just, just (laughs) bopping me on the head. And my next step is to go to, um, my, uh, my editor and quite often my literary agent as well because she she just uh, has such a great sense of is is this a good story is this something worth pursuing she just uh, her 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 sensibilities as a reader are wonderful and so you know quite often we'll have an ongoing kind of discussion by email or or conference call just as I talk out the idea in its earliest stages and quite often I'll present them with four or five ideas at once and then we'll Immediately, it's clear which is the idea that's worth chasing, and then I will typically have a a, a a reasonably long period of just very intensive research where I vanish into the books and the online archives and dig, dig, dig until I I know where the story where I'm going to find the story, and it's usually around that time that the characters start talking to me, which I know sounds a little. Woo, woo! But it's true, and I I know I'm not the only writer that experiences this, where characters start presenting themselves, and along with the characters, it's the question of what is at stake for them, what is happening in their lives, what kind of tension is there in their stories, and really, it all boils down to what do they want, what are they searching for, what do they hope for and where a good story is found is it's there's the disconnect between what they have and what they want or need and it's in those spaces that i find the stories and which i know sounds a little bit it still sounds very vague but once i have the broadly speaking the characters sketched out I start building them up in the sense that I will fill out a modified Proust questionnaire for each of my major characters, which for people who aren't familiar with it, it's if you look to the back page of Vanity Fair every month, they have the Proust questionnaire, which, again, is a, a kind of heavily, you know, it's a very selective version of it in that the original questionnaire that Marcel Proust devised, I think it was as a parlor game, really, has many, many questions in it. But, you know, along the lines of what is your greatest fear? Who do you most despise in the world? What do you treasure the most? Things like that. And if I can answer those questions, I have a pretty good sense of who each of my characters, who, who these people are. Um, to the kind of the depth of their being. And if I can't answer those questions, I have to keep thinking. And then again, roughly at the same time, I start building an outline. I have to work with an outline. I can't be one of these, the fly by the seat of your pants writers. I've tried it, it doesn't work because underpinning everything is the scaffolding of the history, the known history. So I already have, even before I start, more or less there's an outline in the sense that, you know, over the given period where the book takes place, there are known events to which I have to conform. And then I build my book around those known events. So in a way, the history is the foundation and my, my books are built upon it. And it's by the time I start writing in the sense of the creative writing that actually starts looking like a book, I will have been working on the book for something like six to eight months and then probably about the same amount of time goes into writing it. And along the way, quite often i I move away from the outline and have to have to not really start over but rethink what I'm trying to achieve. And, and the whole time, I should add that I'm constantly going back to my editor for for feedback and guidance, because ultimately, she is going to she has, and she will work on many more books than I will ever write myself. So she knows, she knows so much more about the process of writing a book than I do. I've only written five books. She's worked on hundreds of books. She really knows her stuff. And I'm always surprised when people say, oh, they don't work closely with their editor or they, you know, they don't have a close relationship with their editor because I think, well, then how do you do it? I really, uh, you know, I, I find her advice extraordinarily useful and, um, And so it's, in some ways, the, you know, books are a collaborative effort in that you can't sit in a closet and write a book from start to finish by yourself and hope to write a book that's as good as it could be. And so, yeah, that roughly speaking, that's the very, and I, you know, it sounds kind of, it's all over the place. And I wish I could say I have a scientific method. It's fine, no, no, (laughs) no. And every book, it changes a little bit. And the book I'm working on now is still, I'm at the stage where I'm so excited about it, I can barely even breathe. And I'm almost, I can't even talk about it because I'm so worried the ideas are going to vanish before I can extract them from my brain. And in some ways, that's almost the best part of the whole process. Aww.
0: Do you have any parting advice to aspiring writers? I know we're almost out of time, so.
1: Oh, you know, it's the basic advice which is put your bum in the chair and start writing. I see a lot of writers, you know, I don't want to say that I disagree with them. I just worry about how much time they have in a day, which is the same amount of time I have in a day. And we all have the same amount of time. And I think if you spend too much of it on social media, talking about writing, you know, discussing writing with other people, you know, snapshotting your life and what you're doing, you're not actually writing a book you're writing about writing a book, but you're not doing the work of writing a book. And it's very tempting. It's very easy to slide into that. And I have been guilty of it so many times. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the only way you're going to write a book is by putting your bum in the chair or wherever you like to work and turning off everything and just listening to the words in your head and remove, you know, extracting them from your head and putting them down on paper or on the screen. And it's it's a pretty lonely job at those times. And the only consolation is that the characters you're creating are standing alongside you every step of the way. Ah,
0: oh, that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I really appreciate it. Well, it's a real honor to join you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. Thank you. Alright, take care. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by SerialBox, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com, SerialBox.com, delivering addictive book content in short listen or read installments. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. <laughs>